Our two readings this morning will be uh, from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 17, and then John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. John chapter 1 beginning at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Thank you. Do keep that second reading open, if you would. John chapter 1. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the vividness of John's gospel. And we ask that as we listen to this part of it now, 
you would teach us, instruct us, uh, change our hearts as each of us has need. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want us to think this morning, friends, about becoming a Christian. Maybe there's someone here and you're not as yet a Christian and you're saying to yourself, uh, I mean, obviously you have some kind of interest, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And you're saying to yourself, if I were to become a Christian, what would it involve if I were to become a Christian? Many of us, of course, will say, yes, we are Christians. We're going to take part in the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, later. And part of that is a way of saying, yes, I'm a Christian. And it won't do us any harm to look back and think, uh, what, what did becoming a Christian involve when I first became a Christian? And of course, as a church, we want people to become Christians. And so it's worth thinking, what's involved in becoming a Christian? If you were here two weeks ago, we were looking at John's prologue, the um, front door, really, front entrance hall to his gospel. And if you've just got, glanced back a page, chapter 1, verse 7, he says that uh, there was a man called John, that is John the Baptist, who came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all kinds of people might believe. And if you glance on to verse uh, 12, he says there were, were, to all who received Jesus, to all those who believed in his name. And the question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Last week, we looked at verses 19 to 34, and we looked at action that happened on two consecutive days in which John the Baptist gave testimony to Jesus. And John the Baptist was front and center stage in those two days. And he said, I'm not the one who's to come, but there is one who's coming. And Jesus appears uh, on the second of those days. But there's nobody else, as it were, on the screen in the last couple of days except John the Baptist and then just briefly Jesus being pointed to. In today's passage, which takes place on two or perhaps three uh, further days, we see the first uh, John's account of, of, of five men beginning to follow Jesus. We'll see Andrew. Uh, we'll see uh, an anonymous disciple, probably John, the gospel writer. Uh, we'll see Philip. We'll see Nathaniel. Um, and we'll see, that's about it, isn't it? I've forgotten who else. Philip, Nathaniel, the anonymous one, Simon Peter, and Andrew. Simon Peter, I forgot about Simon Peter. He's important. Yeah, Simon Peter's important. Yeah, because he becomes the main man later. Um, so we need to remember him. But we see these five men becoming followers of Jesus, just beginning to uh, do that. And uh, John, the gospel writer, is like a, a really expert um, documentary maker. In our culture, he'd be a documentary maker. And you know when somebody makes a really well-made historical documentary, you can tell um, from, from what the camera does something of the meaning of what's going on. Of course, you get it in fiction as well. If there's a close-up of a girl, of an actress early on, you can be pretty confident she's going to be the love interest. <laughs> And the camera does that. If there's a particularly fond farewell at some point in the story, you can be pretty confident one of them is going to die. 
I mean, that's pretty much right, isn't it? If there's a particularly fond farewell, your, your heart sinks, you think, oh, well, you know, there's something bad gonna, gonna, gonna happen. Now, John the Gospel writer is, a, is a master at giving us something like a sort of YouTube clip. He wants to, to give us a couple of YouTube clips, really, of, of the, some of the first men who followed Jesus. And he wants us to learn from it a number of things about what it looks like to begin to follow Jesus. And I want to draw our attention to, to five things. The first four come in the first uh, story, and the third, fourth, and fifth come in the second story. So there's some overlap. And I want us to notice first from verse um, 35 and 36 that, 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 that the becoming a Christian is triggered by an urgent message of rescue through Jesus. Just glance back at verse 29, higher on the page. Verse 29, which was the previous day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, if you were here last week, you'll remember that, look, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. It was a very dramatic moment. Now look at verse 35. The next day, and look for the differences. The next day, John was there again with two of his, that is John's, disciples. So that's the first difference. I guess John the Baptist's disciples were there the previous day, but they're not, they're not on stage. Whereas this day, John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples, who are by definition men who are, whose consciences have been awakened, who care about sin, who know that sin matters. And there they are, they're standing there with him. And again he says, look at the second difference, verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by. The previous day, Jesus was coming towards him. Jesus was coming towards John the Baptist. He said, look, the Lamb of God. Now the next day, Jesus is just walking past. He's not coming towards him. He's just walking past. And John the Baptist points to him, and he says the same as he said the previous day. He says, look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away sin, the only one who can take away your sin. Look, he's passing by. And it's one of those little details that John, the gospel writer, loves. And there's an urgency about it. And he says to these two disciples who are with him, and we'll, we'll get to know them a little bit in a moment, he says to them, look, yesterday I pointed this man out. He takes away sin. Now he's passing by. There's an urgency. I want you to understand that sin matters. And if you want your sin taken away, you must go after him. It's an urgent message of rescue. And friends, I want to say to us, if you are a real Christian, at some point in your life, you will have grasped that Christianity is not just a context for nice people to gather together. It's not just a safe place in a lonely city. There are all sorts of reasons why people begin to come to church, and they're not bad reasons. There's nothing wrong with them. But if you've become a Christian, at some point you have, you've come to realize that Christianity is an urgent message of rescue. And you've begun to realize that you are a sinner, that you need a savior desperately, and that only one person can do that. I forget, I think I may have told the story of one of our students at the Cornhill training course where I work. I think I may have told this last week or the week before who came to 
came from a Christian family and came to a real faith in Christ when tragedy hit his family. His younger sister was tragically killed. And it, it brought home to him that this business of Christianity is an urgent message of rescue, and so he put his trust in Christ. And that's, that's where the thing starts. And friend, if, 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 you're, if you think you're a Christian, and at no point in your life have you realized that I am a sinner and I need a savior, and Christianity is the message that, of the one who can take away my sin, you need to ask yourself whether you're a real Christian. Not everybody gets that at the beginning of their Christian lives, but at some point I need to realize that Christianity is an urgent rescue religion. Second, I want us to notice as these two men begin to follow him, see verse 37, these two disciples, they hear John the Baptist say this, they follow Jesus, they walk behind him, they begin to be followers, disciples of Jesus. And Jesus turns round And it's so vivid. There they are. They're walking behind him. And Jesus turns around and sees them following, verse 38. And he says, what do you want? And again, at one one level, it's just a straightforward, what can I do for you kind of thing, such as a shopkeeper says to us every day. "What What can I do for you? What do you want? But as is typical in John's gospel, there's a deeper meaning. What is it you're looking for? What is it you're seeking What is it that you really want? Okay, John the Baptist, who you were with, has 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 pushed you to go and follow me. But what do you really want? What's going on in your heart? What is the longing of your heart? And in answer to that question, they say the most extraordinary thing, verse 38. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And that word staying, which means abiding, remaining. It's a very significant word in John's gospel. So they say to him, they don't just say, um, uh, the the, the guy we were with uh, says you've come to take away sins. So do you mind if we just have a brief word? I know you're a busy man, but could we just have, you know, perhaps just a tweet or something like that? Just Just a very brief word with you. And they don't say that. They say, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? We don't just want five minutes with you. We we want hours and hours with you. We want to abide with you. We want to come and stay with you because there's a longing in our heart that cannot be satisfied just by sniffing at the gospel, as one old writer called it. You know, the sort of person who says, well, I've, I've been to a Christianity Explored course, an Alpha course. I've been to some kind of Christianity course. I've, I've sniffed at Christianity. I've had a quick look at Christianity, and that's that. Now, what's going on in these men is a longing for something permanent and abiding, a lasting. Where are you staying? And it's a big word in John's Gospel, because as we read on, we discover that there's an abiding of, of Jesus, the Son, with the Father, a staying, a living together an abiding, a a steadiness, a permanence, and that the Christian gospel is that men and women may be brought into an abiding relationship with Jesus, staying with him, and therefore staying with the Father. And it's a great word in a transient world in which relationships don't last, products get recycled, consumer durables don't last, nothing lasts 
in the world we live in. Even when we want it to last, it doesn't last because sickness and death interrupts it. And in these these men's hearts, there is this beginning of a longing for permanence. Where are you staying? We want an abiding and a lasting. And when God puts that kind of longing in the heart of a man or woman, do you know the encouraging thing is that rubbish Christians won't put them off and bad sermons won't put them off and hypocritical Christianity doesn't put them off, and badly run Christian meetings don't put them off, and all the things that we worry about so much in church won't put them off. When God puts into the heart of these men a longing for that kind of abiding, they will begin to be followers of Jesus. And if if, if we told our stories, those of us who are Christians, They wouldn't be stories of I became a Christian because I was surrounded by brilliant, perfectly consistent Christians and I went to a number of superbly run Christian meetings and I heard really good Christian preaching. No, they'd be stories of God put in my heart a longing and a seeking. And in spite of all sorts of pretty inadequate Christians, I found what I've been seeking, what God put into my heart. So that longing for permanence. Having said that, verses 40 and 41... I want us to notice that for most of us, Christian faith is enabled by a friend's testimony. So verse 39, Jesus says, come and you'll see, and they go, they see where he's staying, they spend the day with him. It's about the 10th hour, that's four o'clock in the afternoon. And then verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, isn't that interesting? Simon Peter has not yet been introduced And when he is introduced, he's not yet been nicknamed Peter. So to call him Simon Peter's brother is, John is saying to people, Andrew, who is the brother of the man you know became Simon Peter, who became the great leader of the earliest church. And before Simon Peter's even been introduced or nicknamed Peter, he says, Andrew, this man who was one of those two following Jesus, I suspect the other one was John the Gospel writer, who keeps himself anonymous, but he's the one who's watching and listening and recording. But Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Wasn't it interesting? How was God going to bring, as a disciple of Jesus, how is he going to make into a Christian the man who was going to be the big leader of the earliest church? And the answer was, he was going to bring his brother Andrew under the sound of the gospel. And his brother Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, was one of these two who's followed Jesus, verse 40. And verse 41, the first thing he does was to find his brother Simon and tell him we've found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Now I want to pause on that for a moment. Andrew finds his brother as a matter of urgency. And he doesn't say to his brother... This is just a word for us if we're Christian people. He doesn't say to his brother, I want to tell you um, that I've discovered a wonderful peace of heart and mind, and I've discovered I've had a wonderful religious experience, and I want to tell you about my religious experience. He doesn't say, I want to tell you all about the subjective stuff that's been going on in me over the last few hours. He says, we've found the Messiah. That is to say, he says, I want to tell you something objective, about a man we've met, that he is the Messiah. I want to tell you about Jesus. 
And friends, I wonder if God has placed you in your particular workplace, and you may be the only Christian disciple who's there, or in your particular family or extended family, your particular neighborhood, because you are the one who has access to somebody whom it's God's purpose that they should come to faith in Christ and begin to be a disciple of Jesus. Andrew first found his brother, and he said, we found the Messiah. Somebody here, I, I think they're not here this morning, but they were telling me the other week, they'd been, actually, we, we'd been at the same thing with them in another church. It was a, a baptism. And um, a, a young woman, who's a friend of ours, was, was, was asked by the person leading the meeting, um, tell us about what, it, what being a Christian means to you. And uh, our, our friend Nikki gave a really thoughtful answer. She, she gave a very thoughtful answer. She didn't say, Jesus makes me feel better or gives me tremendous subjective experiences, though that may sometimes be true. She said, and I can't remember her exact words, but she, she said, I've discovered some things about Jesus, some truths about Jesus, like Andrew saying, we found the Messiah. I, I wanted to point you to Jesus. I, went, I don't want you to be thinking, Gosh, isn't that interesting that so-and-so's had these wonderful experiences? I want you to know about Jesus. We've found the Messiah. Now, my guess is that for most of us here, our introduction to Christian faith came through a friend or a family member. It may be that there's somebody here who, who came to Christ in an unusual way. Perhaps they had a remarkable dream or just picked up a Bible at random and read it. God does sometimes do that. It's a wonderful thing. But for most of us, the way we came to Christ, if we told our stories, would be through a Christian family member or friend. I thank God for the friend at school when I was in the sixth form who invited me to a Christian um, summer activity. I thank God for that. He found me. He said, I want to tell you something about Jesus. Why don't you come to this thing and you can hear more about Jesus and brought me to Jesus? I thank God for that. Many of us will thank God for people like that. And I want to encourage us to seek to be Andrews to others. And I want to acknowledge that it's really hard and I'm really bad at it. And the reason it's really hard is that mostly when we say to people, I want to tell you about Jesus, they're not interested Somebody's used the analogy of trying to light a, a fire from damp leaves in the forest. You try to light a sort of barbecue and you've got some damp leaves and mostly they don't light. And then every now and then you come across one which has been dried and warmed by God's sunshine and it lights. But you have to keep trying to light the bad ones, <laughs> the damp ones, for a while before you hit the good one. I remember when I was a, a, a teacher in a school and, and we would do our best to try and teach the the, 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 the kids in the school about Jesus and bring the non-Christian kids, which was most of them, um, about Jesus. And mostly they weren't interested. But then just every now and then, every now and then, God would have prepared the heart of somebody and they would be interested and God would work in them and they would come to Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing. And for most of us, our discipleship is enabled by a friend's testimony. Archbishop William Temple in the last century said that what Andrew did bringing Simon to Jesus was perhaps as great a service to the church as any man did. Isn't that marvelous? And when Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, I guess he had not the slightest idea of the significance of what he was doing. And it may be that even this week, 
Somebody here will, will, will bravely give some kind of testimony to Jesus in, in, at the school gate or the neighborhood or in the ho- student hall of residence or in the workplace, wherever it may be. And God will bring, use that as one of the steps that will bring to discipleship of Jesus a man or woman who will be greatly used by God in the years ahead. It's possible. It's exciting. It's a wonderful thought that that might be the case. So there is Andrew. It's a wonderful truth. Then I want us to notice that real Christian faith is begun by a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Look what happens in verse 42. Andrew brings Simon, his brother, to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. And that look, it's a word that means looked intently at him. He didn't just glance at him the way we do with people on the tube. He looked at him. He looked right into his soul and he said to him, verse 42, you are Simon, son of John, or Jonah, his father's name. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, and it's a nickname and it means something like Rocky. And Jesus says to him two things. He says, you are Simon. You are your father's son. You are the product of the DNA you've inherited from your mum and dad. You are the product of your nurture. You are the person you are because of everything that has led to you being the person you are. Which means, like you and I, you're a messed up person. You're a sinner, you're a twisted person, you're a person in which there's a whole bunch of stuff wrong. That's who you are. You are Simon, son of John. You're just a messed up human being. But you will be, and at one level Jesus is just giving him a nickname. He's saying, I think we'll call you Rocky. But Jesus is picking on the the feature of of Simon, which precisely is what he isn't. (laughs) Simon is a mercurial character. He's up and down, he's inconsistent. He's very attractive in many ways, but he's not rocky. (laughs) And Jesus says, you are who you are. But through this life-changing encounter with me, you will be rocky. And the day will come when Simon Peter, when after Jesus has died and been raised and the Holy Spirit is poured out, when Simon Peter becomes more Peter than Simon, (laughs) more rocky than what he was before. And that life-changing encounter with Jesus is the beginning of real Christianity. And friends, you and I may or may not have had a dramatic life-changing encounter with Jesus. But if we've not had a life-changing encounter with, with Jesus, if we do not know that at some point the Lord Jesus Christ has said to us, you are who you are, and by my grace you will be someone different, then you and I are not Christians. Because that's where real Christianity begins. I'm not going to spend so long on the next day, but have a look at the next day where you see some of the same features and one new one. Verse 43, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee and he finds Philip, another one, another man who's going to become an apostle. And he says to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from Bethsaida, which is a town in Galilee. And Philip finds Nathaniel. So again, Andrew finds Simon. Philip found Nathaniel. The same pattern. He introduces his, his friend Nathaniel. And he says to him, we found 
the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And look at, uh, look at Nathaniel's life-changing encounter with Jesus. It begins quite unpromisingly, verse 46. Nathaniel's, we discover later that Nathaniel is from Cana in Galilee. And Cana and Nazareth are not many miles apart. They're perhaps nine or ten miles apart. And I guess they were probably rival towns. And so, so Nathaniel from Cana says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Maybe the Cana-Nazareth football match was the local derby. It's like Swansea supporter like me saying, Cardiff, can anyone, anything good come out of there? Or an Everton supporter saying, Liverpool, can anything good come from there? And Nathaniel is prejudiced against Nazareth. Can, can anything good come of there, come from, from there? And Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel does, in spite of his prejudice. And Jesus sees him approaching, verse 47, and he says of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. That's an Old Testament joke. I better explain it. I know jokes aren't so good when they're explained, but I better explain it. Israel, otherwise known as Jacob, the father of the children of Israel, the father of the Israelites, was a man in whom there was great guile. He was a twisted character. If ever there was one, Jacob. So Jesus points to Nathanael and says, as one Jew to another, he says, here is a Jew, here is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. That is to say, there's something in this man that is genuine. Most human beings, whether they're Jews or non-Jews, are not genuine, are twisted. That's not anti-Semitic, that's just an observation about the whole human race. But here is a man in whom God has put a genuineness, a real Israelite, what Israel was meant to be. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. And we don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. Commentators guess, but nobody knows. Uh, but, but, but he says, I, you know, I did know you. And Nathaniel, a bit over the top, verse 49, says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And so there's this life-changing encounter with Jesus. But I want us to notice that real Christianity, although it begins with a life-changing encounter with Jesus, it continues with an ever-deepening understanding of Jesus. Jesus says to him, verse 50, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you shall see greater things than that. One of the puzzles, if you study the New Testament, is that when you read John's Gospel, A number of disciples, as we've seen in this passage, say of Jesus right at the beginning of his public ministries, public life, all sorts of remarkable things. So Andrew in verse 41 says, we found the Messiah, the Christ. Philip says, verse 45, we found the one Moses wrote about. We found the one the prophets wrote about. Nathaniel says, verse 49, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. So in John's gospel, right at the beginning, all sorts of people say all sorts of wonderful things about Jesus. If you're a Bible reader and you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will notice that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nobody seems to get it until halfway through the story. And halfway through the story, Simon Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, that's wonderful that you've spotted that at last. So here's the puzzle. How come lots of people said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel, you're the fulfillment of the Old Testament at the beginning? 
if in the other Gospels, Simon Peter's the first one to get it and doesn't get it till halfway through? And I think the answer is this. We learnt last week that lots of people were saying lots of wonderful things about John the Baptist. They were, they were speculating that John the Baptist was the Messiah. It wasn't such a big deal for people to, to fix on somebody and say, oh, look, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. They were doing that all, all the time. And these first disciples who said, You're the, we found the Christ, we found the one Moses wrote about, they were telling the truth, but their understanding of it was shallow at this stage. So Jesus says to Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. Your understanding is shallow, and you're going to see, verse 51, and this is the punchline, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's why we had as our first reading the account of Jacob, or Israel, and the ladder or staircase that he saw in his dream joining earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this ladder or staircase. And Jesus says that access from earth to heaven that human beings long for, you're going to see that I am the ladder. I am the staircase. I am the means of access. I am the way. You're going to see greater things than these. You've said some, 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 some shallow things about me that are true, but you haven't yet really grasped it. When you and I become Christians, we sign up to certain truths about Jesus. We begin to say the creed and take the Lord's Supper and things, and we sign up to these things. But real Christianity is a process of getting deeper and deeper and deeper in grasping what it really means to follow Jesus. So it begins with this life-changing encounter, but it goes on with this increasing grasp of what a wonderful person Jesus is. And that's a word for us if we're Christian people. Are you growing, deepening in, in, in your grasp as you go through life of who Jesus is, that he is the one who ties earth to heaven, that he is the one who is all the titles they gave him here, but it means more to me now than it did when I first came to Christ. The moment I came to Christ, I signed up to him being the Messiah. But I know, I know more now about what that means, and that's real Christianity, and that's a wonderful thing. So, friends, let me encourage you, if you're not as yet a Christian believer, read these little stories again and see in them the urgent announcement of rescue. See in them the longing for permanence, the longing for abiding, See in them the face-to-face encounter with Jesus that changes a man's life. And see in them the prospect of a lifetime of growing in depth of understanding of Jesus. And if you are a Christian, rejoice afresh in those truths. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray as we close. You are, you will be. God, our Father, we praise you for that life-changing encounter with Jesus. We praise you that he sees us as we are, and he promises that we will be changed. And we ask that that might be true of each one of us, that year by year, 
we may have a deeper grasp of the truth and the wonder of Jesus. In his name, amen.